there is even this division uh, among churches. For for example, there's there's love-oriented churches and there's truth-oriented churches. Uh, hopefully, we can be both of those. But you say, well, what what does that look like? Well, a truth-oriented church would major on things like apologetics, doctrine, evangelism, and preaching. Whereas a love-oriented church would, uh, they would be majoring on things like counseling and fellowship and these these recovery groups and feeding the homeless and so forth. So if this division sounds right to you, then John's second letter should be of interest. It's a very short book. As you can see, there's only 13 verses here in our English Bibles. So let's just jump right in and see what the Apostle John has to say here in this letter we call Second John. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him, per, uh, greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Before we really get into the, the nitty-gritty meat part of the letter here, we need to ask ourselves a few questions and answer these questions. A lot of people are wondering, right from the very beginning there in verse 1, who is the elect lady? By the way, if you're wondering who is the elder, uh, that's just John's way of talking about himself. John, The apostle John is the elder, and he's writing to this elect lady and her children. So who is the elect lady? Well, there is much debate on this. Much ink has been uh, used, shall we say, to try to answer that question. So let me uh, just tell you what one, one commentator says I found quite helpful. 
I'm quoting here, it's on the screen. This brief letter was written to a godly mother and her children. Some Bible students have concluded that the elect lady refers to a local church and that her children are the believers fellowshipping in the church. While it is true that John does address a group in this letter, it is also true that he addresses an individual. Perhaps the solution is that a Christian assembly was meeting in this home, along with the family of the elect lady, so that John had both the family and the congregation in mind. He was concerned that this godly woman not permit anything false to come into her house or into the assembly, end quote. That's from the Bible Exposition Commentary. So, you probably know I tend to take things literally, and I haven't seen anything in this particular text that would say we should, uh, we should uh, take this figuratively. The second question that we need to address is this. Is truth and love at odds with each other? You, you know, in your own life and in other people's lives, there seems to be this tension between truth and love. Well, in biblical Christianity and in, here in our own text, we see that love and truth go together. In fact, John even mentions them together in verse 3. If you look at uh, the end of verse 3, John pairs them together. He says, love and truth. So, what we want to see from the Holy Spirit here is that real Christianity in, includes both love and truth. The third question that we got to ask the, this question then is, what is truth? What is truth? You know, there's a lot of disagreement on that very issue. Well, in John's letters, he talks a lot about truth. And so what, what you need to understand from John's perspective here is that truth refers to the basics or the fundamentals of the faith, of the Christian faith, that is. Of course, if you read all of John's Holy Spirit-inspired letters, you would find that John says Jesus is the truth. John also says that the Word of God is truth. Of course, Jesus is the living Word. And the Bible is the written word, and they are both truth. So that's what we're talking about, and that's what John's talking about. So let's dive right into these two main points. Just two main points today coming from this little letter. First of all, we see that real Christianity involves love. Now we'll see that in the first part of this letter. Real Christianity involves love. And, and, and we're going to see three different things that are really worth noticing about love that's described here by John. Number one, God commands it. We're going to see also that the author personifies it and obedience characterizes it. Let's look at the first part there. Notice God commands love. God commands love. John doesn't write to his readers with an idea of his own making here. This isn't something he's, he's come up with on his own. And he asks them to remember God's command in verses 5 and 6. When he says there in verse 5, Now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Notice John's not just, he's not just making this up. That phrase, from the beginning, means it's from Jesus. It's from the time that Jesus established his church. 
In other words, this command is nothing new. The head of the church instituted this command for us that we love one another. And so the apostles just passing on the commands from God himself to to us that, that God himself had given. And God commands that we live in love. And John is a good model of this to us. We too should not live our own lives just according to our own ideas or our own selfish interest. Instead, we should live in obedience to the commands of God. You say, well, what is the command? Well, he gives the command here to love one another. God commands love. We also see, though, that John personifies love. John, the, as he describes him, the verse himself here in verse 1, as the elder demonstrates his love in this letter that he, was, he has written. First, I want you to notice his manner. He's gentle with these people. He was an apostle. He, he could have been you know, very heavy-handed, if you will, but he's gentle. He, he has a command, but he's not beating them with that command. Look what he says in verse 5. He just, right there at the very beginning of verse 5, he just says, now I ask you. He doesn't say, I command you. He says, I ask you. He doesn't command them. He just asks them. And his manner is demonstrating his love for them. He's being very gentle in his manner. Again, John's a good model for us in how we should speak, how we should act. He He's speaking softly and gently, and so should we. We speak softly with gentleness and kindness and love to each other. Often we, 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 try, to, we try to win, shall we say, in, in the, the opinion debate, right, with other people, and we, we can be quite harsh. Maybe we should stop trying to win our own way. Instead, try to show what's best for everybody. Just live it. That's what John's doing here. But John also shows us his love by his concerns. He doesn't ask them for something that is profiting him. Notice his concern is for these people. He loves these people, and he's showing that. He he wants them to live together in love. This isn't a selfish concern. So John personifies love. We've seen that God commands love. But the last thing we need to notice in the text here is obedience characterizes love. Jesus said that himself, didn't he? If you love me, keep my commandments. Well, you might ask then, what is this love? Right? This is not a Hollywood kind of romance or you know, a romantic kind of a novel you might read. No, John tells us in verse 6, look what he says, This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So love is living in obedience to God's commands. And you say, well, what is God's command? Well, he says right there to walk in love. That means you, you, you live in love. It's, it's not a, just a one-time thing. It's, it's who you are on a regular, consistent basis. And so, my friends, this is not just some, some strange circle. In fact, I found in my own life that 
as I am growing to understand what God has commanded, that I am then better able to love other people. And I'm better able to love God, even. And then as I practice loving, I have more interest then in going back to the Bible, going back to the Scriptures, than to see how God wants me to keep going forward in my obedience for Him. So do you see how that circle works? I hope you do. So we we see obedience characterizes love. And by the way, this love is not a, a loose love. It's not just a simple affection. If you want to know more about that, read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So it's not just a simple affection. It's not just some cold obedience, some dispassionate obedience. No, it's it's warm. It's it desires to give itself for the good of others. Now, do you understand that real Christianity involves love? That's the first part. But John goes on into verse starting there in verse 7 to show us also that real Christianity involves truth. They, they walk hand in hand together. Real Christianity involves truth. And so if you look at verse 7, the tone, the atmosphere of this letter changes dramatically. John's going to start writing about deceivers and the small a antichrist. Why? Well, John wants you to know that real Christianity involves love and truth. It's both. The first thing that John wants us to understand is that false teachers oppose the truth. They oppose the truth, and so we've got to watch out for them. We have to be aware of them. John's passionate about this. John's passionate about the truth can be seen here in his opposition to those who oppose the truth. Who are these opposers of truth? They're false teachers. Look at verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. That's what he says in verse 7. What are these false teachers teaching? Well, John only mentions one thing here. And it's a very important one. He, He says they're denying that God actually became a human being and took on human flesh. Remember, it kind of goes back to this first century belief of Gnosticism where they thought that, that, that matter was evil and the spirit was good. So, so they, they wanted to believe that God was good, God's spirit, that's a good thing, but there's no way that, that the two could ever come together because human flesh is an evil wicked thing so they thought and so they 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 said no there's no way that jesus could have taken on human flesh like like we have lest jesus be evil and wicked well these false teachers continued to call themselves christians and they attempted to teach people their heresy by the way that this belief hasn't gone away we still have false teachers cults and sects doing the same thing that John had going on in his time in the first century. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses are doing this very thing. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jehovah, God, but they don't believe that God took on human flesh. So there are people out there today with this same belief. The same error and heresy is is around even today. 
So consider how these false teachers present their own teaching. Here's how they do it in verse 9. Verse 9 says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching is both the Father and the Son. I think John's probably echoing kind of their own words, kind of using the false teacher's words here, saying things like, hey, they're, they're running ahead. They're, their doctrine's progressive. You ever heard people talk that way? You know, we're, we're progressive. We're, we're relevant. We're up with the times. That's probably the kind of talk that they were using. And of course, John says, I'm not going to have any of that. These teachers, he says, are deceivers. They've departed from the teachings of Christ. Now, there's a warning to be said here. Not all change is bad. <laughs> okay? <laughs> now, now, don't get really radical here. There are some people who, who think all change is bad. You know, they, wanna, they want everything to stay the same. And not all change is good either. But how can you tell what is good and which change is bad? Do you know how to answer that question? Well, let me propose to you to use the Bible. The Bible is our only rule for faith and practice. The Bible is our guide. And so when we, when we use the unchanging holy word of God, it's, it's that standard, the immovable standard that will tell us what is good and what changes bad. So we've got to contend for the things that are clear in the Scriptures and then continue in them. But the problem was these false teachers presented their change as an improvement. <laughs> oh, they were like, oh, you, you people believe that Jesus is God and that He came in the flesh. Oh, but we have a better way. We, we can improve on that. We'll, we'll trump that. Our teaching is progressive. It's relevant. It's up with the times. They probably made clever arguments, and some were being persuaded. So how were their hearers to know better? Well, the answer is by knowing the Bible, by knowing the truth. And so John says that Christians must know the truth. It's imperative that Christians know the truth. He talks a lot about truth in his letters. And that's the second point that John is making here. And you'll notice that there's few truths that are as important as, as this one here, is whether Jesus is God come in the flesh. In, a, in about a month, we'll be celebrating Christmas together. Isn't that what Christmas is all about? Even Jesus' name Christ is in the word Christmas. Christmas. God come in the flesh. And so the Apostle John is adamant about this truth. In fact, he says, this is how you can know that you're a Christian. Do you believe that Jesus is God in human flesh? So my friends, there are some truths that are essential for Christianity. Whether or not Jesus is fully God and fully man is such a truth. And so if you lose this truth, then you actually lose Christianity. That's what John's saying here. You, you might be saying, well, how is that practically worked out? Well, think about it this way. The sacrifice of Christ's physical body is crucial to our salvation. You say, why? Well, we're sinners. We're born sinners, the Bible says. 
David even said, in, in my mother's womb, I was conceived in sin. And so we are human, we are sinners, and because of that we require a human substitute for our sin. The good news is Jesus made a way for sinful human beings to be reconciled to God the Father. And he did that through his body, his perfect sinless body. And if then the Bible says if we repent of our sins and we put our trust, our faith, and our belief in him alone, then we can be saved. And that's why we can't misunderstand this truth. We have to understand, we have to believe that Jesus is full humanity and full divinity in one person forever. And he, he exhorts us, look what he says in verse 8. It's so important, John says in verse 8, Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. So my friend, you do not want to lose the reward to which you've been looking forward. You might be asking, well, what is John talking about here? What is this reward? Well, primarily, John's referring to salvation, to eternal life. But he's also talking about this relationship that we have, that every Christian has with God through Jesus Christ. It's precious. And, and it's not something that we want to lose. So John says, watch out. You don't want to lose this. Well, I feel like I need to remind ourselves of a quote that comes from the Reformation. I've said it often, and here it is. It's up on the screen. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. In all things, love. And John's really reminding us of this, this, this truth that in the essentials, that's how we have unity. In truth, we are unified together. And that's why it's imperative that churches have doctrinal statements. The truth is what binds us together. But in non-essentials, there can be diversity. We, it's okay to not agree on everything. You understand that. We don't have to be the one-eyed monster, so to speak, right? Where, where everybody sees eye to eye. Well, that's just never going to happen in this life. You're never going to see eye to eye with everybody on everything. But when we disagree, we should have love. And so that's a very good statement, a helpful statement. But I don't know if I've ever expanded on that. Some of you might be wondering, well, what are the essentials? What are the fundamentals or the basics of the Christian faith? Well, let me just share a few. Uh, this is not an exhaustive list, but uh, if you've seen our church's doctrinal statement, you'll notice all of these things are in our church's doctrinal statement. They're there because they are the fundamentals of the Christian faith. These are the essentials, the things that we have to be unified together over. And of course, the first one comes from Deuteronomy 6.4, that there is only one God. There's only one God. And we have to worship Him, the one true God. Number two, there's one, that, that God is one essence, but He has revealed Himself in three persons. Now we call this the doctrine of the Trinity. Tri means three. He is a triunity. You, you can't chop him up into three parts because he's only one God, but he is three persons. 
And number three, that all people are born sinners. And because of that, we are in need of a Savior. Romans 3.23 tells us. And number four, John mentions this one, that Christ is the God-man. In other words, Jesus has two natures, God and human, and they're combined together in one person forever. So when we get to heaven, you're going to see the God-man. Jesus is not going to revert back to being spirit like he was before Christmas, the first Christmas. No, he's always going to be these two natures in one person. And number five, that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Number six, Christ paid the penalty for sin. You can't do it. Nobody else can do it for you. Christ has done it. And it's a one-time sacrifice. Number seven, Christ arose physically from the grave. He really did die, and he arose physically, conquering Satan, death, and sin. Number eight, Christ will come again. Now, by the way, just so you know, there's, there, there's disagreement on, on a lot of non-essentials. All right? That's okay. Uh, and there's even various denominations and things that would disagree with us. If you, if you want to disagree on things like the rapture and that sort of stuff, that's okay. That's, that's a non-essential. But this is one that Christians have to agree on. Christ is coming again. He said he would. The last thing he said is the last thing in the last book of the Bible. He is coming again. We have to agree on that. Now, this one is not often included but I think it's, it's, it, is in our, it is in our church's doctrinal statement, and I think it is a fundamental of the faith. It is an essential that God created the universe. God said so, Genesis 1.1. Now, there's a lot of disagreement on that one, too, of course. Of course, a lot of people in our world think things like big bangs and random chance and so forth, evolution. We must be unified on this, that God is the creator of the whole universe. Another one that's not often included, because a lot of people kind of put it under the Trinity, is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I think this is also an essential of the faith, that the Holy Spirit's the third person of the Trinity. John says so in, in John chapter 16. Here's what our church's doctrinal statement says. Very helpful. I'm quoting from it. It says, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, regenerates sinners, indwells and empowers believers to live godly lives, and seals believers until they reach their eternal home, end quote. So, not only does Jesus have a continuing ministry, we need to understand the Holy Spirit has a ministry, and he, he's even working right now as we speak. Well, that leads us to the eternal state, which is not often included in the fundamentals of the faith, but which I think should be. So again, I'm quoting from our church's doctrinal statement. It says, We believe that the souls of those who have trusted in Christ for salvation at death immediately pass into His presence and there remain in conscious bliss until the resurrection of the body at His coming when soul and body reunite to be associated with Him forever in glory. Well, that's the believers, but what about the unbelievers? Well, here's 
Here's what it says. The souls of unbelievers remain after death in conscious misery in hell until the final judgment of the great white throne at the close of the millennium when soul and body reunite to be cast into the lake of fire forever, end quote. So there is an eternal state for the believer, and there's also an eternal state for the unbeliever, and it's not the same place. Well, that leads me to number 12. I think the church, doctrine of the church, should also be included in an essential of the faith. And, and here's what our doctrinal statement says, that we believe that the church is a universal body of true believers over which Christ alone is head. Notice it says Christ alone is head of this church. And that's different from many churches. Some would argue and have different opinions on that. All right, the last one, of course, has to be that the Bible is the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is inspired. It's, it's breathed out by God. So here's what the church's doctrinal statement says on that one. I'm quoting. We believe the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments to be the all-sufficient and only rule for faith and practice. They are verbally and wholly inspired and without error as originally given, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who guided the human writers, end quote. So notice it's only 66 books, so that would exclude the Apocrypha. Notice this is God's work. He has verbally and wholly inspired it. There are no errors in the original writings. So those are the essentials. They're very, very important. So the one John mentions is not the only essential of the Christian faith. It, it is one of, of many. So in those things, we must be unified. Now, many churches start to make uh, the non-essentials essentials, and that's where you, you get problems, right? So if you start making music an essential, or, you know, do we have drums or no drums? Uh, should we, we have instrumentation or not, or... Do we sing out of a hymn book or only PowerPoint? Or, you know, is the rapture pre-trib rapture? Is it post-trib? Is there no rapture? You know, you, you get the point. Those are sort of things, when people start getting these wars going on in churches over the non-essentials, you get all kinds of problems. Shouldn't happen, but it does. God says, in the non-essentials, allow diversity. You don't have to separate with everybody who doesn't see eye to eye with you on those things. But you should love them. Well, John moves on in this letter to a third point as he's showing that real Christianity also involves the truth. And he says here that Christians must be inhospitable toward error. Yes, we are commanded in the Scriptures to be hospitable to one another. But there are some things where you should be inhospitable. If you look at verses 10 and 11, it should be pretty clear. Because he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. What does John mean here? Okay, Again, there's a lot of ink been spilled on this, this very issue. For example, some might wonder, well, does this mean that I should not uh, allow 
someone whose teaching I disagree with into my house. Well, I had a neighbor when I lived in Hastings who, who felt that way. He would, in fact, he wouldn't even let me stand on his grass. We always talked in the street or on the footpath. <laughs> uh, he wouldn't come into my house either. He was, uh, he was one of those closed brethren kind of people. So he, he really took this literally. And there's, there's other people who would say, well, hey, I can't, I can't allow you into my house based on this teaching here. And then there's some that think, well, do we we refuse lodging to my cousin because my cousin is is a Jew? Or should we refuse to share a meal with a Jehovah's Witness? Or what about that Mormon who comes knocking on my door? Uh, does, Does this mean I can't allow the Mormon into my house and I can't talk to the Mormon because we don't see eye to eye? Is that what this is talking about? Well, let me give you a few observations from the text itself that will probably answer those questions for you. Number one, notice verse 10. John says, if anyone comes to you, you see that in verse 10? So he doesn't mean people who do not profess to be a Christian. Okay, So it doesn't mean you can't allow or a non-Christian into your house so you can evangelize them. John's saying that's okay. But what he does mean is people who profess to be Christians, yet they're teaching false doctrine. Okay, do you see the difference? Okay, these are professing Christians who are teaching heresy. For example, like that Jesus never became a man, or that Jesus is not God, or... You know, that the, the Bible is not the Word of God, so forth. That sort of thing, right? Uh, the other thing that John mentions, number two, is when he refers to someone who, quote, comes and brings this teaching, he does not mean just in a casual sense. In other words, he's not talking about some visitor that might walk in and say, uh, you know, you know, after the sermon, you know, hey, I, you know, I disagree with your pastor. I think I think what your pastor was teaching is absolute rubbish, right? That's, that's not what John's talking about here. Um, he's not talking about that Sunday morning visitor who just thinks the pastor's wrong. He's, he's referring to someone who comes in official teaching capacity. Th- this is somebody who claims to be a teacher of the Bible and uh, often is a, is a traveling kind of a teacher. The third thing, that clue that John gives here of what he's talking about is John's forbidding them, notice the word receive. Somebody, if you have a different translation, it might have a different word. By receive, he means he, he does not want them to give their recognition of this false teacher. In other words, don't consent to that false teaching. Do not let them teach the church with their false doctrine. Why is that? Well, John says so here. He because he says allowing him to teach is actually sharing in his wicked work. That wicked work being teaching false doctrine. It's having fellowship with error. John says you're to have none of that. So I, I hope that kind of clears things up for you. What, so what John is saying is it's okay to talk to unbelievers. 
It's okay to have an unbeliever into your home. It's, it's okay to allow unbelievers to come into the church, into the local church, as in the, the visible, right, what we see here, right? That's okay. But what's not okay is to allow those false teachers into the pulpit. It, what is not okay is to allow them to come into your home and teach you their, their error. So, my friends, we must not have any fellowship with false teaching, in, in particular when it comes to dealing with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Yes, we can have open homes, but our pulpits have to be closed to false teaching. So, what has John taught us? If you get nothing else from this lesson today, remember this, that real Christianity involves love and truth. Love and truth, they go together, or at least they should. Let me, in case you're not quite getting this, let me illustrate it with an analogy. Okay? I I hope you understand this. Let's suppose you're going to travel to New Zealand's capital city, which we call Wellington. You're going to travel to Wellington by car. You have a map. You know how to get to Wellington but you have no fuel in the car. How far do you think you're going to get? You know, your your gas tank's on empty, right? How far do you think you're going to get? Not very far, right? But let's let's say, on the other hand, you have fuel in the tank, the the fuel tank's full, and in fact, you have extra fuel tanks just just when that one runs out, so make sure that you're, you know, it's overkill, right? So you got extra fuel tanks, but you do not have a map, there's no street signs, and you don't know how to get to Wellington. What do you think is going to happen? In fact, you, you don't have a compass, and you're, you're like the, the worst person in the world as far as directions go. I mean, you, you know, somebody says, well, just look at the sun, and you get confused, right? You know, I, wh- which way is north, south, east, west? You don't have a clue, you know, you, you know, somebody says, go to Auckland, you, you go the opposite direction. You know, you just, you, you know, you can't even find the ocean, right? You're, you're that bad, right? Let's say you're one of those kind of people. You say, well, what's the point in all this illustration here? Well, in a certain respect, John's saying that truth is like a map and street signs, while love is like the fuel in your car, car's gas tank. Truth tells us where we should go, just like a... a a street sign is hopefully accurate. Uh, so, but love helps us to get there. Love is, is like the fuel in the tank, right? You, you say you're going to go to Wellington, but your car's on empty. You're not going to get there, at least not in your car. But what love does is it, it motivates us. It pushes us out. Now, here's the point. As a Christian, you need a map. You need the street signs. That's the truth. We must know the truth. We must believe the truth. But Christians also need love, and so John's combined the two together here for us. We need both, love and truth. See, it's not enough to just kind of sit in your car and study a map, right? That's not going to get you to where you need to be. If you want to go to Wellington, you're not going to get there by sitting in your car reading the map. See, that's not going to start your car engine, is it? Neither one of those options is a good thing. 
And so you need both. You've got to be well-balanced. John's saying a well-balanced Christian. Real Christianity involves love and truth. And so we need to be love and truth people then, don't we? We need to be a church that is a, a love and truth-oriented church. John says we should know the truth and then live that truth out in love. Now, claiming that you know the truth without living in love is actually demonstrating that you don't know the truth. That's what John says. But try living in love without knowing the truth. It's not possible. John says that that's impossible. It can't be done. You can't live in love without knowing the truth. What's going to happen is you're going to deceive yourself, and then you'll deceive others. And of course, that's, that can be a very dangerous thing. So what's, what is John telling us to do? Accept the truth and walk in love. In other words, believe the truth, know the truth, but then do something with that truth. Let love motivate you and drive you to act upon that truth. God's grace enable us to do that. Let's pray.